0: I'm delighted that you're here, and delighted that those who have joined us by Zoom are uh, signed in to follow along with us. This before you that you see on the screen is our study from last week as we talked about, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled, from John chapter 14, verse 1, verse 27, as well. And in that, we talked about how the disciples were disturbed or would be disturbed as the Lord had just informed them that he was about to go away. Until we talked about the comfort of a complete faith, the hope of a prepared place, the promise of a second coming, the assurance of an answered prayer, the meaning of disciples' love, and the gift of God's peace. But I want you to keep in mind that as he closes this section, John chapters 13 through 17 that Jesus is about to depart from them. He's going to go be, uh, be arrested and then be tried. And then he's going to be crucified. And then he's going to go away when he ascends into heaven. And that they do not understand. Well, they soon met challenges to trouble their hearts. That's what I want us to see and connect our study today with what we saw in our study last week. They soon begin to meet challenges that would trouble their hearts quickly remind us some things because we're headed toward Acts 4 is where we are. But before we get to Acts 4 at his arrest and his trial, they face some challenges. For example, Judas stood with them, that is with those who came to arrest him. That wasn't really a trial for Judas, but it had to be for the other disciples. As they are there in the garden with Jesus, this was by the way from John 18, our Bible class study slated for this morning that we've looked at this past week. That in that study, we saw that as the man came to arrest Jesus, Judah stood with them, the text says. That had to be discouraging to the other disciples. But not only that, Peter followed at a distance, the text says. Matthew's account of that. John, in John 18, you might be turning to John 18, because I want you to notice two or three phrases in John chapter 18 that suggest to us that their faith is being tested And at least their heart's being troubled to some degree. But chapter 26 of Matthew says he followed at a distance. Verse 16 of Matthew 18, he stood at the door outside. His heart is being troubled. Let's go a little bit later in the context. Verse 18, Peter stood with them. Here are the enemies of the cross. Here are the enemies of Christ who have arrested him. And they're the ones who are against Christ. And Peter is with them, warming himself by the fire. And the text says, and you might underline it, verse 18, but Peter stood with them. Tells me he is being challenged and troubled in his heart. Well, they were troubled upon his death. When they come a little later, John chapter 19 and in verse 2, when they came to the tomb, they're wondering where they've laid him. He said he'd be raised from the dead, but they don't get that point. And they're wondering, what's happened to our Lord? He said he's going away, and we come to the tomb expecting to find his body there, and we suddenly realize it's gone, and where have they taken him? Verse 11 says, Mary is outside weeping. They're troubled. Well, at his ascension, when he ascended, that was a challenge to them, in the sense that Acts 1 and verse 11 said they stood gazing into heaven. And there is some conjecture on my part here, but they must have been wondering, where did he go? And not so much where did he go, but... What's this mean for us? He said he would go away. What's going to happen to us? This band of disciples band together and they begin to pray after Jesus had ascended to heaven and they don't really know what direction they're going to go. What I want you to notice is soon they met challenges to trouble their heart. Well, they had sudden success following this and then a collision. What do you mean sudden success? Well, on the day of Pentecost, Just a few days after Jesus had ascended into heaven, there's a large crowd gathered there. Acts 2 and in verse 5, people from every nation under heaven had gathered. 3,000 responded and obeyed the gospel according to verse 41. What great success they had. But then soon, there was collision. So let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. That's where we are for our study this morning. And this evening at 5.30 on our Zoom-only meeting, that is, we're not meeting here, but we'll have a Zoom study, we're going to look at some things in Acts chapter 5 and connect all of these lessons together. But in Acts chapter 4 and 5, here's a quick summary of what took place. First of all, Peter and John were arrested, and we'll come to that in a moment and look at the details thereof. They were brought before the Sanhedrin Council. They were threatened. They were even beaten for the cause of the Lord. What I'm suggesting to you is they had sudden success, things were going well, and then there was collision, and their hearts are put to the test. I want to suggest to you that the apostles and early disciples were courageous. They were very courageous, Now they faced some challenges. When you saw Peter standing at the door outside, following at a distance, and even denying the Lord, I wasn't too courageous on his part, when he stood with them, stood on the wrong side, that's not too courageous. But in Acts chapter 4, they had mustered courage. So let's do a quick summary of Acts chapter 4 here, and then come back and list some things that we learn about being courageous. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Let's do a quick summary. Before you is an outline of Acts chapter 4, so let's quickly run through the outline and get the gist of what's going on in Acts chapter 4. I call this simply Peter and John before the council. What is the council? That's the Sanhedrin council. That was the supreme court among the Jews. It was the highest court among the Jews. Now, while they were under Roman law, and it was the Romans who could, for example, in the case of Jesus, actually authorize the putting to death, they had to go through the Jewish court first. And they did. We saw that in our previous studies. And so, this is the highest court for the Jews. So let's begin at verse 1. I'm not going to read every verse. I'm going to give you simply a summary of what took place. As they had spoken these things. Now what are these things that have taken place? Well in Acts 3 remember there was a lame man that was healed the text tells us. And there was a sermon about Christ. Now healing the lame man did disturb the people. But the sermon about the resurrection is really at the heart and the core of the problem that the Sanhedrin council has with Peter and John. Now when they had said these things. Here was the sermon about Jesus The captain of uh, the temple and the Sadducees came upon them and greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There was the problem they had with Peter and John. They laid their hands on them, put them in custody, and until the next day, in other words, they kept them in, in jail overnight. And however, many therefore yet received the gospel and they responded. That's verses 1 to 4. Beginning in verse 5, they're put on, on trial, so to speak, and they're questioned. Now, What are they questioned about? Well, at verse 7, Annas, the, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, gathered together in Jerusalem. And they put them before this council and they asked them this question at verse 7. You might circle verse 7. We'll come back to that later. And they set them in their midst and they said, by what power or by what name have you done this? In other words, who authorized you to be healing this man and in So beginning at verse 5 down through verse 12, the answer was it was by the power of Jesus Christ who by the way was raised from the dead and it's by him that this man was made whole. Now let's drop down to verse 13 here, and let's talk about the reaction of the council in verses 13 through 22. What was the reaction of the council? Well, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and concluded that these men had been with Jesus, and they agreed that indeed a miracle has been done. That's evident, and we cannot deny it, verse 16. So what did they decide to do? They decided to threaten them and to tell them, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus and the apostles responded, saying that we cannot but beseech the things that we have seen and heard, verse 20. We're going to keep preaching and doing exactly what you tell us not to do. Now, beginning at verse 23, the second section, here is the reaction of the disciples And 23 to 31. So Peter and John now, having been released, they go and they tell their companions, and they go tell the disciples, here's what the chief priest and the uh, The elders in this council, here's what they've done. Here's what they've said. And uh, so that's at verse 23. Beginning at verse 24, the disciples band together, and we won't read this because we're going to read it later. They band together and they pray for boldness. They pray for boldness. We need boldness. And the result of that prayer was, at verse 31, the place where they assembled together shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now let's get the rest of the chapter quickly. There was the commitment of the disciples. They were committed to unity. They all band together as one, verse 32. They were committed to one another. Look at verse 32b, that they had all things common. Verse 34 says there was not any among them that lacked, but those that were possessors of lands and houses sold them and bought the possessions. But they were also committed to the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel, according to verse 33. So here is their commitment in several areas. They're committed to be united, to help and take care of one another, and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And that is the end of chapter 4. Now, let's go back to where we started. There was a need for courage. There's always been a need for courage among the disciples. Joshua was told on the verge of crossing over into the land of Canaan three times in chapter 1, be strong and of good courage. Verse 9, be strong and of good courage. Verse 18, be strong and of good courage. You need a lot of courage, Joshua. And so did these disciples here in Acts chapter 4. The dictionary defines courage as the quality of mind or spirit that enables a person to face difficulty danger, pain, etc., without fear, bravery. Courage has to do with standing alone in the crowd. You see, it really wasn't too hard to stand in the midst, if you were in a crowd that was in opposition to the gospel, to stand in that crowd and be with them and stand with them. That's not too hard. That doesn't take a lot of courage. Because this is where everybody's standing. Courage is standing alone in the crowd when everybody else is going in the opposite direction. So again, if you don't have your Bible open, I encourage you to get your Bible open. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Let's talk about courageous living. Every one of us need to be courageous in our living. Now what does courageous living require? Courageous living demands giving answers to opportune questions. Courageous living demands giving answers to opportune questions. Look at verse 7. I had you to circle that and mark it earlier. When they'd set them in their midst, they asked, By what power, by what name have you done this? That was a great question. And what a great opportunity it was. Not all questions provide an opportunity to teach the truth. But here was the question. The question was, who authorized this? Who told you you could heal this man? And who told you you could be preaching the resurrection of Christ? Who authorized all of this? What a great question that was. And Peter took that as an opportunity to talk about Jesus The very thing they'd been called in question on, the preaching of the resurrection, it gave him an opportunity to say, you've asked me who authorized this? It was Jesus who was raised from the dead that authorized this. Notice that with me at verse 10. Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. That's not what they wanted to hear. Gave them an opportunity to talk about authority. the authority of Christ verse 12 in contrast to the authority of man verse 19 we'll come to that a little bit later whose authority really matters gave them great opportunity to do that it takes courage to give such an answer as they gave at verses 8 through 12 it took courage for Peter and John they could have weaseled out and said you know what you know, I, 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 I don't want to say anything about what caused this. Maybe we shouldn't have done this miracle in the public. And maybe we shouldn't have been preaching Jesus to be the Christ who was raised from the dead. So maybe we better back off from that. They didn't do that. It took courage for them to say what they said in verses 8 through 12. It'll take courage to give an answer that you're asked that may be a narrow answer. Someone may ask you a question And the answer is going to be quite a narrow answer if you give the biblical answer. And that may take courage to give that answer. It'll take take courage to give an answer that's contrary to what people believe. To give an answer that's contrary to the popular concept of the world, even the popular concepts of religion. It'll take courage to give an answer that may be thought to be strange. When someone asks you, why, why are you doing what you're doing and why do you believe what you believe in, and what's going on in your life and you give them an answer and they look at you like you fell off of a turnip truck or something. You, what in the world are you thinking? You're strange. That takes courage. Questions may provide an opportunity for some things. It may provide an opportunity for you to talk to someone about authority and how authority works. Like in Acts 15, when the question of circumcision came up, There was an ideal opportunity to talk about how authority was established and revealed by the Holy Spirit, verse 28. I may give you an opportunity. It may give you an opportunity to teach about Christ and His resurrection, the heart and the core of Christianity. It may give you an opportunity to teach that it makes a difference what one believes in religion, 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 10. That's one of the biggest obstacles we have to overcome in teaching someone the gospel. And so maybe their question may give you an opportunity to demonstrate to them it does make a difference what a person believes in religion. I want to suggest to you that answering those opportune questions require knowing how to answer. What do we mean? We need to know what to say in answer to the questions. What do we mean by that? Well, First Peter 3.15 says that we ought to be able to or ready to give an answer for everyone who asks the reason of the hope that is within us. I mean, we need to know what to say. What, what is the right answer to the question when they say, where is the authority? Or why do you practice it? Why do you have the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week and only on the first day of the week? Why, why do you do that? Why do you take every first day of the week? We need to know what to say and give the right answer. But not only that, we need to know how to say it. I won't we'll take the time to read, but here in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 19, Jesus draws a distinction Between what and how. Sometimes we may know what to say, but we don't know how to go about answering that to be effective in that. 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 2, Paul talked to Timothy about how one must be able to teach, meaning they need to know what to say and need to know how to say it. So let me ask you a question. Are you living courageously? Are you giving answers to opportune questions? Courageous living demands trusting in the one way, verse 12. That's what Peter said they were doing. So let's go back now to verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What did Peter say? Peter said there's no other way to be saved but through Christ. Jesus himself had said he is the way, John 14 and 6. Any who are saved will be saved by his way. Now notice verse 12 says there's no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. The name refers to all that a person is and all their attributes, their authority that they have. There is no other authority under which we might be saved. There is no other being by which we must be saved or can be saved than through Jesus Christ. I learned from that that every tree that is not planted by the Lord indeed will be rooted up Matthew 15 and in verse 13. We must trust in the one way, and that takes courage to do so. These disciples were courageous to state that there's only one way. You see, when our religious friends and much of the world thinks, you know, you could be saved in any fashion, this as long as you're sincere, to state that there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, that takes courage. It takes courage when someone asks you, aren't you in that group that believes there's only a small people, group of people that's going to be saved, and you answer yes. That takes courage. It takes courage to trust the one way with all of your life and all of your soul. You stop and think about that. Suppose someone says, you know what, I, I, I think maybe Christ is the way, but I'm not so sure but what Islam, and so I'm going to try it a little bit too just in case it's the right way, and I'll try a Buddhist, a Buddhism just in case it might be the right way, and I'm going to try several different things But when you're convinced Christ is the only way, and you put your whole life and your whole soul and everything, all your eggs into one basket, that takes courage. And that's what Peter was saying. When the world has no time for religion that thinks they are right and teaches a limited view, it takes courage to say, I'm a part of that religion. That's where I am. It takes courage to tell those who trust that they are saved that they really still need salvation. That takes courage. So let me ask you this: Are you living courageously? Are you putting trust in the one and the only true way? Let's go back to Acts chapter four. Courageous living, like Peter and John and the other disciples, required showing evidence of the influence of Jesus. Look at verse thirteen with me, if you will. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marvelled. And they realized they had been with Jesus. Let's talk about what the people saw, what they see. First of all, they saw the boldness of Peter. It took boldness for Peter to say, you ask me by what authority? It's by the authority of Christ. He was raised from the dead, the very thing I've been preaching to you. The very reason you arrested me. They realized the boldness, the confidence without fear or timidity. This is what's right and this is where I stand. They took note that these were uneducated men. It doesn't mean that they took note that these men were country bumpkins. They didn't really know anything. But they were unschooled, the New International says. In other words, they were not formally trained. Maybe very, in fact, they were knowledgeable men. But they were not formally trained. Furthermore, the text also says they were untrained. The New International says they were ordinary, common men, revised standard. So they took note of the boldness and the courage of men that were not professionally trained, and they were just common, ordinary people. Now let's talk about what they concluded from that. These common, ordinary, untrained men who have this this great degree of boldness that we're talking about. What did they conclude from that? They said these men have been with Jesus. Look at the end of verse 13. And they realized they had been with Jesus. I like the rendering of the the, uh, Living Bible, the, uh, the TLB. They realized what being with Jesus had done for them. They begin to realize these men have been spending time with Jesus. They are his disciples, and now they realize the great influence that Jesus had been on them. They have the same courage, the same boldness, and the same message that Jesus had. I want to suggest to you it takes courage to let the influence of Jesus show in your life. How so? When you have top priorities, when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, That more than anything else you want God to rule in your heart to the sacrifice of anything and everything else, that takes courage to display the influence of Jesus in your life. To treat others fairly, maybe when they don't deserve to be treated fairly. Because Jesus taught, Matthew 7 uh, 7 and verse 12, as you would that men do to you, do you, and so to them, for this was the law and the prophets. It may take courage to display the influence of Jesus in your home. When, for example, a wife says, I'm, I'm submissive to my husband, even though that's kind of ridiculed in our society, when she shows the influence of Jesus in her home and to her friends and to her neighbors and her coworkers, that takes courage for her to do so. Saying no to some things, like the life the Gentiles live. All the sin that's mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4, when you're saying no to the things of the world and they think it's strange that they don't, you don't run with them to the same uh, excess of riot, and so they think you're odd and strange that you don't drink, you don't use the language, and, and you don't dress like they dress, that takes courage to say, I'm not doing that. And here's why I don't. Let me ask you a question. Are you living courageously showing others that you have been with Jesus? That takes courage. Let's go to verse 20 of Acts chapter 4. Let's continue on noticing the courage of these disciples. Jesus had warned them, things are going to get tough for you, and they are getting tough indeed. Look at verse 20. They displayed courageous living by having unstoppable determination, verse 20. Look at verse 20. Peter said, for we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. These men were given an ultimatum. They were told to obey the Sanhedrin. Don't teach anymore. Notice back at verse 17 that it spread no further. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in his name and they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. You can't do this anymore. Don't do that anymore. We don't want you doing that anymore. So the ultimatum was, obey the Sanhedrin and don't teach anymore. The ultimatum was, don't obey God. Don't do that. Don't do that. They forbade them to speak in the name of Jesus. They did not forbid them to speak. They did not forbid them to do any teaching. In fact, they would have encouraged their teaching if they would teach against Jesus. They just simply forbid them to speak in the name of Jesus. Don't preach what he wants you to preach. I want you to notice at verse 19, the apostles appeal to the conscience of the rulers as to whose authority they should follow. Look at verse 19. Peter and John answered and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. What would you do? It's as if Peter is asking, Peter and John are asking the Sanhedrin, what would you do If you were told to do something contrary to your conscience and what you thought God was telling you to do, which would you follow? Appeal to their conscience. But I want you to go back with me to verse 20. They were determined to speak and they could not be stopped. Look at verse 20. For we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. What courage Peter must have had. In contrast to standing with them, John 18, as we noticed earlier. Why such courage? Because Peter and John are now convinced, absolutely convinced, this message was true. They felt compelled to do what was right, no matter what took place. We must be determined to tell the truth, even if it's opposed. When someone asks you about the one true church, about is baptism essential, or is Jesus raised from the dead? Or was the world created in the fashion that the Bible tells us in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, tell the truth even if it is opposed? Because we must preach the whole counsel of God, Acts chapter 20. We must continue to teach the truth even if it is opposed and people won't listen. In Ezekiel 3, we won't take the time to go there in Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel was told, you go tell them, they may not listen, but if they don't listen, at least you saved your own soul. You did what was right. Even if they don't listen, go ahead and preach and teach the truth. Paul told Timothy, the time would come when men would not endure sound doctrine, but preach and do the word evangelists. They're not going to listen to preaching and tell them exactly what is right. Courageous living means that we're determined to do what's right and live for God, and that cannot be stopped. Do you remember in 2 Peter 1, add to your faith virtue? Virtue, knowledge, etc., if we were doing a textual study, we spend time on virtue. But quite often we talk about adding the Christian graces. We may start with knowledge. What we need is knowledge. But here he said, add to your faith virtue. What is virtue? Moral courage. That We're seeing displayed in Acts chapter 4. Paul could not be stopped. That's moral courage. What do you mean and he couldn't be stopped? Do you remember in Acts 14, the first missionary journey, where he went into a city and they took him outside and stoned him and left him for dead? What did he do? He got up and went back in. I'll tell you, that's moral courage. We need the attitude that says no one is going to stop me from doing what I know to be right. The disciples were certainly put to a challenge. When I can easily be stopped by my family or our other plans, that's not very Courageous. But I can easily be stopped by family making some plans and that deters me from, from serving the Lord as I should or whatever the family's decisions or the family direction. Or if I'm easily stopped and deterred by, by some discouragement I have, that's not too courageous. These disciples that seem to be so despondent in John chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 bursting forth with courage in Acts chapter 4. And so let me ask you this question you live courageously do you have a determination that i cannot be stopped i'm going to do what's right and i'm going to do what's right regardless verse 24 living courageously demands praying in earnest now this prayer is quite interesting to me it's on the screen before you but i want us to work through that text verses 24 through verse 30 and think about and he might hold a finger there and be turning over to Psalm 2 because this is what's quoted here. And what was the context of Psalm 2? So let's start at verse 24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. And I want to tell you that one of the things we need to be doing in times of distress, in times of discouragement, in times of opposition, is we need to spend time praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. Pray for boldness, pray for courage. Pray for those who make decisions. Look at verse 24 though. When they heard this they raised their voice to God and with one accord said you are God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. We recognize God you are in control. We'll come back to that in a moment. Who by the mouth of your servant David said why do the heathens rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Where is that found? Well, let's go over to Psalm 2. This is a quotation from Psalm 2. So what was Psalm 2 about? Why do the nations rage, verse 1 says. That's the Gentiles. You say, how do you know? Because of the interpretation given in Acts chapter 4. Just a minute, uh, we'll get to that. So why do the nations, the Gentiles rage against God? They rebel against God. And the people, that's the Jews, plot vain things. Why is it that the heathens oppose God and even some of the Jews who were supposed to be God's people oppose God? Why do they do that? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointing. So here is the opposition of the heathen world and even the Jews. Well, that's what's going on here. The Sanhedrin council were the Jews who were opposing the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. And so as they pray, they're praying a prayer and referencing back to the psalm that talked about the opposition of God's people, or to God's people, by those who were supposed to be his people. Well, let's go further. Look at verse 27. I'm Back in Acts chapter 4, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles... And the people of Israel, here's your interpretation of Psalm 1 in verse 1, were gathered together when they opposed the Christ. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand. Now therefore look on their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal, that the signs and wonders may be done through through, uh, the name of your servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, verse 31... We'll see, come back to that in just a moment, the result of that prayer. So here's what I just learned from the prayer. The prayer praise to God. Secondly, it was a recognition God is in control. We've repeatedly made that point in our last several studies. God is on his throne and in control. And so they recognized, God, we recognize you are in the, on the throne and you're in control in all of the circumstance. We know that. They prayed for the problem at hand, verse 25 and 26. They saw a parallel. In Psalm 2, to what was going on, and their prayer was for boldness. What was the result of that? Well, verse 31 says, they spoke the world with boldness. God responded in the answer to that prayer. So, the question is, are you living courageously? Are you praying earnestly? As they did in Acts chapter 4. Let's go one more time to verse 36 now. Courageous living demands being an encouragement. Verse thirty-six. Now, this also is quite interesting. At the end, that in the middle of this turmoil, there's some problems, lack of uh, things that are needed to for daily necessities need to be taken care of. And Barnabas is mentioned here. He was such an encouragement that the disciples had named him. Barnabas, the text says, which means son of encouragement. When one possessed a possession of such high quality, they were often called the son of that quality. And I say in Ephesians 2, the, the Gentiles were called sons of disobedience because they were so disobedient and so sinful that they were labeled as sons of disobedience. That's your characteristic. You take on the characteristic as if disobedience had begotten you. Well, Barnabas was such a man, it's as if encouragement had begotten him. He was such an encourager is the point. You know, Barnabas was an encouragement to others, and how so? Well, let me give you some examples, not only in this text, but we'll come back to it. But in Acts chapter 9, he vouched for Paul. When, when the church at Jerusalem didn't know whether to accept him or not, they, they turned to Barnabas, whom they had confidence in, and he vouched for him and said, he's a good man, and he's been converted, and he's now preaching the truth, and he's genuine, and yes, you can accept him and embrace him. That was an encouragement to that church and to Paul. He strengthened the church at Antioch. When the church had begun, he comes to Antioch and he spent a year there and he strengthened the church, the text says. And he had the qualities to so do. Verses 22 to 24. He traveled with the apostle Paul. That had to be an encouragement. Acts 13 and 14. He didn't give up and he saw a potential when when others may have dismissed someone. For example, in that discussion that got kind of heated between him and Paul over John Mark when they got ready to take him again. And Paul didn't want to take him. He lost confidence in John Mark. And I can understand why. But Barnabas had confidence in him, wanted to take him. It was a judgment call. And I want to suggest to you that you can encourage just like Barnabas. What can you do? You can encourage with the Word of God. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. You can take the word of God, whether you're skilled or not skilled, you can take the word of God and present it to someone, or just remind them of a single verse, and you can comfort one another with these words. You can comfort people with your presence and your faithfulness. When people see your dedication and your devotion and your determination, that's an encouragement. You can encourage with your commendation. Remember what Paul said about Timothy? There is none like him. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he said he is uh, he's different than people his age. He's, he's not like most people his age. He's different than that. What an encouragement that, encouragement that must have been to Timothy. And you can encourage with your confidence that you have in someone else. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6 for one last verse. Hebrews chapter 6. And in verse 9, here's what Paul said about the brethren to whom he wrote, and I think he to be the writer, a church in Palestine at least, perhaps Jerusalem. The beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Talk about some who had the result would be they would be burned. But we're confident of better things. I've, I've got confidence. That won't be you. I've got confidence that you will be different. I've got confidence that you indeed will endure. So let me ask you one more time. Are you living courageously? Are you an encouragement to others? You see, in John 14, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You're you're going to face some trials. You're going to face some things you didn't know that's coming your way. Don't be troubled. Don't be discouraged. And boy, did they face some things they didn't think they were going to face. Before Jesus even left them, they saw him arrested, he was put on trial, then he was crucified, and then he went away. And then things got better. Then there was a collision. And in the midst of that collision, what we see in Acts chapter 4 is they were living courageously. That's Acts chapter 4. This afternoon at 5.30 on our Zoom study, we'll look at Acts chapter 5. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith in Christ, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come? while together we stand and while we sing.